If you think you're in church today, you're not. <laughs> you're in a locker room. I'll explain that, okay? But you really are. You, you, you think you're in church, but you just entered a locker room. Uh, today we're going to talk about some things that are important to this church that come out of our story, our history, that we think are important because the past shapes the present, and the present informs the trajectory by which we walk. And we've just come out of a season where a lot has happened, a lot has changed. I mean, I don't even have to spell any of it out. Uh, we, we, we all know the season that, that we've been through um, in a micro, but also in a macro sort of way. Um, our world has changed. And here we are, Crossroads. We're here. We're still alive and kicking. <laughs> All right, we, we might have made a few mistakes, uh, took a few licks, um, but, but we're here. By the grace of God, we have a very good shepherd. And everything that is true about that shepherd in Psalm 23 uh, is, is true about how God has shepherded this church, and not even just in this last season, but from the very beginning. And really, in this season, uh, Crossroads has changed. Um, some of you who've been away for a long time are, are now returning. Uh, some of you who've been away for a long time may never return. <laughs> uh, also, at, during this time, we have a lot of new people. In fact, huge shout out to all the new people who have come to Crossroads in this last season. Uh, the fresh wind, the fresh fire that you have brought into this community, into the space. Uh, we know it, we see it, we sense it, and we're so grateful for it. And that would either be a great spot for an amen or for you guys to actually start clapping if you want. <laughs> And, and it's in light of all of this that not only do I feel like our church is closing a chapter and entering a new chapter, but the language uh, that, that I've used, because I've been sensing this uh, for several months, the elders, the staff at this church, they too, I think, have been sensing this. It, it's almost as if we are replanting crossroads. We are replanting this church. And it's not like we haven't done this before. <laughs> Uh, if you don't know this, Crossroads is a church plant. Uh, 18 years ago, when we planted this church, I just remember just looking around and just thinking, wow, everyone here is like a stranger to me. And, and, and we were all strangers to each other. But the thing is, in, in church plants, uh, no one is looking around and saying things like, I don't know anyone here. Uh, that's, what it, that's what established churches say. Church plants are like, I don't know anyone, which means I need to move in, I need to move towards, I need to partner with the people who are around me. And I can tell you, 18 years later of doing that, uh, I have dear friends and brothers and sisters who we left our shire I know, come on, it's, we're in the locker room, right? Uh, we formed a fellowship, <laughs> and we went to Mordor. 
Because that's really, uh, we did. I mean, the, the kingdom of heaven is an adventure that you lock arm in arm with, with, with people. And, and it's breaking out. It's, it's, it's busting forth. And so today I say, let's do that again. Let's do it. Um, as we enter this new season, though, it would be foolish for us to divorce ourselves from our past. God is always commanding his people to remember. He says, remember me. Remember how I redeemed you. Remember how I led you. In fact, in Israel, uh, when I take groups there, you, you come across uh, things like these. Uh, I think I have a PowerPoint of this. But maybe not. Oh, good. Uh, right there. Uh, these are called standing stones. And some of you have been to Israel. I don't know. That was our first part of the trip. Maybe you were too sleepy and jet-lagged to, to remember. Uh, but I actually did take you there. Uh, this is what the ancients would do. The ancients would erect stones like this, or sometimes it would be a stone pile to commemorate uh, something that God did that was so amazing that we can't forget. Jacob does this. The patriarchs do this. Joshua probably does it the most. Seven times in the book of Joshua, Joshua is erecting stones or a stone pile uh, because this was their way of putting a stake in the ground, a memorial to God to remind them, not just at that time, but their children and their children's children, that when they would come across these stones, their kids would look to their grandpa and say, what are these stones here for? And then grandpa could say, man, you should have seen what God did. And God's done some pretty amazing things miraculous things in the life of this church. And so as we look forward, I also don't want to forget the faithfulness of God. And there are three standing stones that I want to place before us today. I'm just going to tear it now. My heart's tender. It's a... Uh, it's raw, especially when I think of this first. Uh, I was going through this with Libby. I said, this can't happen. <laughs> it just can't, but it is. Here it happens. All right. This first standing stone is the stone of the desert. The desert. I mean, like the biblical story, like God's people in the biblical story, the, the desert has probably shaped the family of crossroads is much or more than anything else. And you say, well, what's the desert? The desert, biblically speaking, is two things. Yes, it's a place. It is a place where life is hard, where it hurts, where sometimes you don't know if you can take another step. That's one part of the desert. The other part of the desert, it is the place where God dwells. So literally, this is in the Hebrew language. Uh, they, their word for desert, which is Dalit, Beit, Reish, those three uh, letters of their alphabet. Uh, then depending on how you vowel, vowel point it, there it is right there. Depending on how you vowel point this Hebrew word, DBR, Dalit, Beit, Reish, it can mean desert, it can mean word, 
This is why you read in the story all the time of, of God's prophets or John the Baptist or Jesus. They go into the desert. Why? They want to get God's word. So it means desert. It means word. It means to speak. Again, this is the place where God speaks to us. And it can also mean holy of holies. Holy of holies is God's living room. Paul picks up in the, on this whole idea in the New Testament when he talks about his desert, that thorn that he describes in 2 Corinthians 12 that is bringing pain to his life, so much so that Paul pleads with God, God, would you please take this away? And all God says back to Paul, Paul, my grace is sufficient for my power. My power, my power is made perfect in weakness. In the desert. In that place. And see, this is why Paul says in just a few verses later, because he came to learn that. That wasn't just a proposition that God gave to him, but this is something that Paul learned, that God's power is actually perfected in the desert. Paul says, then I will boast of my suffering, my weakness, my desert, because through this, the power of Christ dwells in me. It lives in me. It's through desert that we experience the holy of holies, that we enter into God's living room. So the first thing that God did with Crossroads is he led this church in a desert. Our leadership, which included me, we were young, we were cocky, we had attitude, I can honestly say that we were seeking to be one of the cool churches in town, and God simply said to us, if you're going to be anything useful in my hands, I'm going to have to break you. And so he led us into the desert, and some of you are in this room right now who are part of that season. You remember it very well. God humiliated this church. He took this church into the scorching hot desert. And it was in this place where this church left cool and being cool behind. We didn't care about cool anymore. It's because it was the time when we became weak, where we became desperate for God. In fact, during this time, people bailed like crazy, staff bailed, elders bailed, but a few stayed. And I'll never forget the few who did. Because this church would not be around today if it wasn't for those few. And through this season, this desert, we learn something that will always burn inside of us that God loves weakness. He loves it. In fact, I will take it this far. It's the only thing that God uses is weakness and desperation and need. I mean, it's from cover to cover in our biblical story. I used to have a profound experience of this. The last Sunday that I was with you, I, I was exhausted. I think I even told you how exhausted I was. Um, I was literally then getting on a plane to fly to Uganda, where Joe Sindorf and I, the next day on Monday, were going to lead a conference for 100 Ugandan pastors. And when I got to you, 
uh, Uganda, Joe didn't make it that far because his paperwork didn't match up with all the COVID stuff. So now it's just me. Um, I had a session. Joe had a session. I'm like, oh, no. Uh, what am I going to do? Then I had four hours of just COVID protocol in the airport there. I didn't get to my bed till like four in the morning, and the conference started at, at nine, only to have breakfast with the lead pastor from Uganda, and him telling me, yeah, you're leading the whole conference today. I have one session. And in that moment, it's almost like, God, is this a joke? Like, I'm exhausted. I have enough for one session. And I'll just really quickly tell you what happened. I did the one session for the rest of the day. This exhausted pastor talked with a hundred exhausted pastors. And we had just dialogue about our exhaustion, but all that God was in our exhaustion. And God gave us all just enough. That's what he loves. And I think when God sees weakness, he says, okay, I can work there. Whether it's weakness in a person, weakness in a marriage, weakness in a family, weakness in a church, that's when God can work. In fact, I think God's power, if you look at the biblical story, it's always unleashed through weakness and through suffering. And crossroads, we had to learn this, not through a sermon. Of course, it's in the Bible, so we preach it, but we really had to learn it through life. In fact, last week I was reminded of Crossroads' first funeral because it was 12 years ago when I was going through the book of Ruth. We, we, we actually did preach the book of Ruth 12 years ago. Um, and if you were here last week, you know the first, first week is on suffering and famine and, and desert. And one week after preaching Ruth chapter 1, we had our first funeral. Kristen Stowe, the daughter of Gary and Kathy, I mean, think about this. Gary and Kathy now run our grief share. But their 19-year-old daughter, who worked in the kids' ministry uh, every weekend, uh, tragically died in a snowmobile accident. And you know, when you get hit with suffering like this, you think, okay, how are we going to get through this? How, how are we going to even take the next step? And there are three things that I'll never forget about Kristen Stowe's funeral. Number one are the Stowe's, Gary, Kathy, their whole family. Not even just at the whole funeral, but, but that whole season. They just taught us how to walk through suffering. They, they were just beautiful to look at. I'll never forget the tangible presence of God. Again, not just at that funeral, but in that season. He was giving us just enough, and his presence was so powerful. And the third thing I'll never forget at the funeral is how desperate and inadequate I felt. And sitting by my side that whole day, he didn't leave me. He knew what I was going through. 
And I just remember right before I had to get up, and he was right there. He's just like, Rod, Slammer, you got this, man. And when I was done, he looked me in the eyes. He said, Slammer, I've never heard anything more powerful in my life. It was our youth pastor, Derek Tages. One of my best friends. Youth pastor at this church, dad, husband, son, brother. Unless just over a year later, Derek passed away. And you know, I'm, I, I'm right now just giving you just a, a, a small sampling of, of, of the weakness and, and the desert that, that God has, has led us through and led us in and been present in. In Deuteronomy 8, he says to Israel, remember how I led you in the desert in order to humble you. And then God in Jeremiah 2 verse 2 says, I don't only want you to remember because then he says through Jeremiah, he says, and I remember it so well. In fact, listen to how God puts it. He says, I remember the devotion of your youth, Israel, how like a bride you loved me and you followed me through that desert. God's saying that desert, I remember it. It was like our honeymoon. And then in Hosea 13 verse 5 Uh, God says this to his people. He says, in that land of burning heat, Israel, I got to know you. Desert is the place where we get to know God. It's where God's power is perfected in, in our lives, where it's unleashed in us and through us. This is why this church will always be comfortable with desert, with suffering, with weakness, because it's what God uses to perfect his power in us. And most importantly, when you look at the whole biblical story, suffering and weakness are at the heart of the gospel. God became weak. He suffered in every imaginable way, ending with a cross. And that's the gospel. That's why Paul says this, we preach Christ crucified. Because God hanging on that cross That Roman symbol of humiliation and defeat is how God is actually unleashing his world-redeeming power and his life-changing gospel into the whole world. And just think about what Jesus, hanging on that cross, says to us. Can you see him hanging on on that cross for you right now? That's God on the cross. And that says to us that we are that desperate, we are that wicked, we are that broken, we are that helpless, we are that weak, that the God of the universe would have to go to that length to rescue and save us. Do you know this? And when you read the Gospels, and you take note of who is drawn to Jesus, and who Jesus is drawn to, It's desperate, weak people. It's sinners who are publicly falling at his feet, washing his feet with their tears, loving Jesus. And it's this other group of people who are blind to their depraved, helpless condition because of their self-righteousness and they're repulsed by this. More importantly, they're repulsed by Jesus. And herein lies the importance of the desert in our lives. 
It's the desert where God can open our eyes to our weakness, our true need, even our depravity. And it's here where we get to be in God's living room and experience his presence in ways that changes our lives. So this standing stone of the desert, we are not leaving that behind. It will always be before us. Second standing stone. Now this one kind of snuck up on us. Because in the early days, we were like any other church. We're, we're pouring all of our energy into the weekend gatherings, and, and we were doing this series on Elijah, and we were coming to the story of Elijah on Mount Carmel. And I remember in our planning meetings, we were like, wow, could this be a week where God would come down like fire? And that revival would break out in our church. And I remember we were thinking about this and longing for it and praying for it and getting ready for Sunday and snowstorm. <laughs> and in those days, Crossroads never canceled church, but we just absolutely had to. It's the first time we ever canceled. What this allowed for me to do was to get further ahead into the Elijah story and as I studied this story more and more, I saw, yeah, fire actually did come down on Mount Carmel, and there was a national revival that day. Uh, that day, that day, there was a revival that day, and it just came and went, kind of like Sundays, just kind of come and go. And then I saw how depressed Elijah became right after this. Literally, he, he, he runs and gets under this tree and tells God, I'm done, I want to die, I quit. God responds by saying, saying to Elijah, come meet with me on Mount Sinai. Elijah makes his way through the desert to Mount Sinai. And he comes there to have it out with God. And God responds by, first of all, sending a tornado then God sends this massive earthquake. Then God sends uh, fire and lightning. It just breaks and it comes down. All the ways that God revealed himself to Moses and to the Israelites. But here's the stunning thing in the story is that God wasn't in the tornado. God wasn't in the, the fire that came down. And God wasn't in the earthquake. But God was in this whisper. God whispered to Elijah, Elijah, if you want my kingdom to break out, you got to do it my way. And what God essentially told Elisha that day is, look, it's not going to be fire coming down on Mount Carmel. I want you to go, and I want you to make a disciple. I want you to pour your life into this man, Elisha. And so our second stone is the stone of discipleship, not spectatorship. 
And so really to raise this stone up in our church, we had to smash another stone. We had to smash the stone of Mount Carmel, the idol of Sunday mornings and the show and everybody coming for the show and, and, and seeing what happens. Uh, stage audience, let's do it. And not only did we smash it then, but, but even now we continue to have to smash this idol because from time to time it just creeps back up. And so when we sense that it's creeping back up, because it is a very tempting idol to start worshiping worship. And that's why there are no clergy in this church. Because we are going for another thing. We are going for discipleship. There are only discipleship. Disciples in this church. And this church does not exist to make converts. It doesn't exist to attract seekers. This church doesn't exist to sprinkle a little bit of Jesus on your life. Crossroads exists to make disciples. Jesus begins his whole ministry with these words, come follow me. Peter, James, and John, I want you to walk after me. And why does Jesus want people to walk after him 24-7, 365, for the simple purpose that they can become like him? And then at the end of the ministry, when he's done, when these 12 have become like Jesus, then he says to them, now I want you to go into all the world and do what I did, make disciples. And so if we're going to get serious about discipleship, the, the most basic question that we should be asking then is, what is a disciple? First and foremost, a disciple is someone who has a passion to become like Jesus. And the way that we become like Jesus is we sit at his feet, we park our life behind his life, and we drink him in thirstily like a deer panting for streams of water. And we take him in so we can become like him. We walk behind him so we can learn to walk as Jesus walked. That's a disciple. Secondly, a disciple is someone who lives in authentic community. You cannot be a disciple on your own. You can't be a disciple by watching a screen. You must be in community. This is why Jesus had a community of 12. And it's not just a community. It's an authentic community. It's people who are doing life together where they're open and they're raw and they're real. Uh, real. They're not doing fake Third, a disciple is someone who takes all that they have become in Christ and all that Jesus has produced in them and they reproduce that in someone else. Every disciple is a disciple maker. So here's my question to everyone in the room right now. Are you a disciple? Because this is what we're going for. We're not looking for church attenders. We're seeking to become a church of disciples who make disciples. That's standing stone number two. Standing stone number three. 
I'll call it the city. Because years ago, we, we, we did this uh, series called The City of God, where we essentially went through the whole Bible uh, looking at this thread, seeing that uh, Babylon and Jerusalem, the city of man and the city of God, really run through the entire biblical story. Um, and so the Bible, we, we saw as basically a tale of these two cities, the city of God, the city of man. Um, and, and God used this whole series to profoundly shape our ecclesiology. And what do I mean by ecclesiology? That's just a fancy word for church or the purpose of the church. I mean, what is the purpose of the church? And Jesus looks at his disciples in the Sermon on the Mount and he says to them, you are a city. You are a city set on a hill. You are a city that cannot be hidden. Meaning the church is to become its own city. And then when you read the rest of the Sermon on the Mount, you, you start to understand what this city is. Uh, and, and, and basically, I can sum it up with one word. It's distinct. It's crazy different than the world. Jerusalem is radically distinct from Babylon. We're different in how we do relationship, how we do marriage, how we do family, how we live out our sexuality, what we believe about sexuality, and all these things are gifts of God that we are to steward for his glory. We're called to be a distinct city where the weak can come and find strength, where the guilty can come and find forgiveness, where the oppressed can come and find protection, where the homeless can come and find a home. We're to be the kind of city where people from any and every tribe can come and form this amazing brotherhood, this family, where ethnic and cultural differences are esteemed and celebrated, but where we live as one family, where we all have each other's back, where we treat each other as family. We're to be a city where people can come and encounter the living God, where they can find him, where the worst of sinners or the most esteemed saints can come and learn of their desperate need for Jesus and his gospel. Can you imagine such a place? That's Jesus' blueprint for the church. That's the kind of city we are to be. And when Jesus says you are to be a city that cannot be hidden, this is not a city that hides and stays away and runs to comfort and safety. I mean, this is Jesus' vision for changing the whole world. It's to raise up a Christ-like people and then push that Christ-like people in the heart of every city. And I'll tell you what this means. This means this church does not exist for itself. We do not exist for our kind. We do not exist for our tribe. We're not even here to build a great church. We are here to be the city of God for our neighbors and the nations. And if we're going to transform the city of Grand Rapids, it's going to be done Jesus' way. 
It's not going to be done. It's not going to be done. It's not going to be done through politics. It's not going to be done by seeking political power. It's not going to be done by trying to take over or by voting the right people in office. In fact, the way that the church actually exerts power is when we don't seek power. But when we become a lot like our Savior, Jesus, we live to give up power. We live to give up our lives, living day by day, moment by moment, like Jesus. My life for you, not your life for me. One of the things I spent a lot of time on this Sunday, summer was studying the early church. And this is how the early church won their world for Christ. They became countercultural. They didn't just preach a life-changing gospel message. Of course, they preached it. They proclaimed that Jesus Christ is Lord. They preached Christ crucified, but they actually became that message. They became Christ crucified. And they then moved that message right into the heart of every city so that when famine or earthquake or plagues hit a city and everybody left the city, the Christians stayed and they took care of the sick and they filled in the gaps. And that's what started to win the West for Christ. So our mission is not to escape the world, but it's to be like the early Christians, fully present in it. And so into the city, we must go into the marketplace, into the medical mile, into the universities, into every neighborhood, so that when famine and plague hit, we're there offering Christ. And we've already heard this morning this whole notion because the early Christians had had this burning in their hearts as the fabric of their mission, this notion of royal priesthood. Um, They rejected this idea that there was this professional class of clergy or priest or pastor. Can we please reject that idea? It tires me out. I am not the pastor of this church. I am looking at the pastors. (laughs) That's biblical. That's what royal priesthood means. It means that every single one of us is to be a priest. And, and, And what is a priest? Well, the Bible spells it out. It's someone who declares the praises of God with every fiber of their being through their personality, their gifts, their resources. A priest is someone who lives to put God on display. A priest is someone who stands in the gap on behalf of lost, broken people. We're all called to that. That's why phrases around here, you're going to hear us use them, and if you don't know what they mean, I'll explain them. 90-10 is a phrase you'll hear a lot, which means 90% of who we are as a church needs to be outside of a Sunday morning. 
We also use phrases like street corner. Street corner means we all live in a place. We all have a sphere of influence where we are doing our lives. That is your street corner, and that is the place where you are called to be a priest. Amen? Five things now. I, I, I want to charge us with five things. Here they are. Number one, I'm calling this church to adopt a church planning mindset. We're replanting our church. I'll tell you something about church planners, because I was a church planner. Church planners love change. They love new because they know the kingdom of heaven is not this static thing, but it's dynamic. It's always moving. It's always breaking out. Christ right now is on the move, whether you know it or not. He's always on the move through his spirit, his gospel, his kingdom. It's this dynamic force in the world and the vehicle by which Christ is on the move right now. His church. Us. He wants to partner with us. People who are filled with the spirit, inflamed with the gospel, Unleashed for the kingdom. And see, as Christ moves in us and as he moves among us and as he moves through us, things change, people change, hearts change, marriages change, neighborhoods change, churches change, cities, nations, the whole world changes. He's moving. But established churches, forget that. Church plants, they live for it. Let me tell you something about church plants. Church plants start with nothing. No congregation, no building, no staff, nothing. And because of this, church plants, I know this by experience, operate out of desperation. In fact, in the early days, we used to call this church the church of the desperate ones. We were desperate for Christ, desperate to see him, desperate for him to move amongst us, desperate for Christ to be unleashed in our lives and through our lives. Now, we're not starting at ground zero today. But I want us to establish, to, to, to forsake this established church mindset where we just grow comfortable and we trust our resources. And we're not desperate. We're not desperate for Christ. We're church planning, and we're desperate. Number two, I want us to reject any and every form of consumer Christianity. Now, what do I mean by consumer Christianity? Well, I was at a football game yesterday. 110,000 people. 110,000 people watching those 22 players on the field. 
And while those 22 players in the field are sacrificing their bodies for those 110,000 people, spectators just sitting in the stands, eating hot dogs and drinking Cokes. Sadly, I think that's become a picture of the church today. We've turned this thing into a spectator sport and Jesus never intended the church to be that. So don't come here as a consumer. Don't come here to watch the show. We're not that church. I don't even want you to come here wondering how, how, how is Crossroads going to bless me today? <laughs> Imagine if every one of us today got all prayed up on our way over here and our, our prayers to God were, God, would you give me opportunities to pour my life into someone? Would you give me opportunities, God, to just bless one other person today? Can you imagine what might happen in us and among us? Again, one of the, my favorite depictions of, of this church is Crossroads, the locker room church. I love it. It's partly because of who I am. I'm a coach. And I'm looking around, I'm looking at my teammates. And I've played enough sports to know the, the, the importance of the locker room. I love the locker room. I love the memories of being with my teammates in the locker room like we are right now. But the locker room is not where the game's played. The game's playing on the playing field. And my jo- job as your coach is to coach you up and to get you on the field so you can play. Number three, would every single one of us passionately seek to become a disciple of Jesus Christ? Because that is what this church is going for. We do not exist to just gather here and sing some songs and listen to sermons. Uh, I'm not saying there's anything bad in that. But we are going for this 24-7, 365, walking with Christ. So ask yourself, is there a Paul in your life who's pouring into you? And is there a Timothy in your life who you are pouring into? That's a disciple. Number four, I know Christians today are uncomfortable with this language of warfare, but we are living right now in a world that is spiritually at war. Paul said our battle is not against flesh and blood, but it's it's against the powers and the principalities of this dark world. And maybe it's because I'm now reading The Hobbit and, and Lord of the Rings. All right. I know I've I've read and watched it too many times, but you know what? We are the fellowship of the ring. We're the little hobbits fighting the big dragons and the monsters. And Jesus said it this way. He said, the kingdom of heaven is forcefully advancing and forceful people are taking hold of it. Don't get scared by that verse. Because the word for forceful is all over the Old Testament to describe the kingdom of heaven. In fact, we're going to come to it in Ruth chapter 4. It's the Hebrew word perez. And it simply means to break out. Or to bust forth. 
And what Jesus is saying, he's saying the kingdom of heaven, it is busting out right now and it's breaking out people who are taking hold of it. Are you taking hold of the kingdom of heaven? Are you on the playing field? Or are you sitting in the stands? I can say this because this is not my church. Crossroads is something special. We are part of something awesome. So much is at stake. The baton is in our hands. It's our time to run the race. We all need to keep dreaming dreams of the kingdom. Joel 2 dreams of what God would do in us and through us. In fact, I think we need to go for things that are so beyond us. We need a dream of things, of God's shalom breaking into chaos. Where when we see God realize these dreams, all we can say is, wow, God. Wow. Are you kidding me? When my son went to play football at Wheaton College at a recruiting weekend, the coach, Swider, whole room full of parents and players. I knew some of these players because some were from Grand Rapids and they weren't even that Christian. <laughs> he gets behind the podium and he starts talking about his football program and then he just moves his sheet to the side. And he says, I'm done talking football, literally two minutes in it. He said, what I want to talk to you about is your relationship with Jesus Christ. Do you love Jesus? Do you want Jesus? Are you going for Jesus? Because if you're not, you're not right for us. And we're not right for you. And I say that kindly to all of you. Are you right for this church? Is this church right for you? Let's pray. God, you have been so good. And God, in light of your goodness, as we embark, God, on this new season in our church, Like Moses said, God, if you don't go with us, it's all a waste. God, my only prayer right now is that you would make every heart in this room desperate for you, desperate for you. Let's stand right now. Our brothers and sisters, when the church was being formed, they had convictions. In my church growing up, we just kind of mumbled these things, we recited them. But these are life-changing convictions that I want us to declare together through what is called the Apostles' Creed. Join with me, don't recite it, let's declare it. I believe 
in God the Father, Almighty, Creator of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried, He descended into hell. On the third day, He rose again from the dead. On the third day, He rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there, He will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and life everlasting. Amen. Ooh.